Heads up listeners, on this episode, we're going to be discussing eating disorders and diets. There's also a mention of sexual assault. If those aren't topics you're ready to listen to, skip this one and come back. I had a conversation with one of the Sweat Life Ambassadors this week who's participating in our Goal For It Swim program. The program is taking 16 ambassadors through a 10-week program to get more comfortable in the water swimming for exercise. Through tears, she mentioned that last week she went by herself to the pool, walking from the locker room to the pool in just a swimsuit. You don't know what it feels like for someone living in my body to just do that, she said, adding that being in the water made her remember how much she loved it. And that's the thing fat phobia does. It strips away a layer of humanity. If a person has had to live their life being told that their body is wrong, how are they supposed to feel comfortable in their skin doing the things that bring them joy? This is Gina Anderson Cohen, founder and CEO of A Sweat Life, and this is the final episode in our deep dive on diet culture we featured on our podcast, We Got Goals. I wanted this episode to showcase the ways that living in a larger body can be beautiful, frustrating, and some of the ways that diet culture can make it hard to simply be a person seeking their own sense of joy. I say some of the ways because we only have an hour. On this week's episode, I spoke with Savala Nolan, a speaker, a lawyer, and a writer who's contributed to Harper's, Shape, Health, Vogue, and Time, among many other publications. She's also the author of a collection of essays on race, gender, and the body titled Don't Let It Get You Down. And through the book, Savala shares perspectives on intersectionality as a woman who has a mixed race identity, who came from poverty, who also experienced wealth, who's lived in both a thin body and a fat body. And she shares openly the ways that the prism of identity shapes and shades the world and how she's learned from dating, working, going through traumatic labor and delivery and raising a daughter. And this book made me remember how interesting it must be for writers to live in a world where their readers know their innermost thoughts, feelings, and experiences that shape them. I knew Savala, how she met her husbands and the traumas of her past before we even could have that arbitrary conversation about the weather. San Francisco was rainy, by the way, and Chicago was, well, Chicago. Savala generously gives pieces of herself to the reader to bring them into her world. So it was jarring for me to see her face-to-face on Zoom for the first time. Her voice was pretty cemented in my mind as I'd just read her book from cover to cover and reread one of her essays called Bad Education that was so packed with raw emotion that it kept me up at night. Three essays in particular speak to diet culture in Don't Let It Get You Down. They're titled The Body Endures, Fat in Ways White Girls Don't Understand, and Little Satin Bomber Jacket. We talk about those essays on this week's episode, as well as a piece that Savala wrote for Health in 2020, titled, The Reason My Disordered Eating Went Unnoticed by Almost Everyone. You can get your hands on that article in the show notes, but in it, she discussed how black bodies and fat bodies were looked at not only as bad, but as morally wrong. In that piece, she dives into historical works that outline the actual facts of racism shaping the way we see each other and ourselves. And in the piece for help, she shares a list of some of the things she missed out on because of dieting and internalized fat phobia. Swimming or eating in public, being photographed, wearing tank tops, hugging, and more. So yes, sometimes swimming laps is just swimming laps, but lots of times it's a radical act of working really hard not to give a fuck about what someone else may think of the body in the swimsuit. And that's something to truly be celebrated. 
You'll hear Savala share about these topics and touch on so many others in her book, which the New York Times Book Review calls a standout collection, a brutal, beautifully rendered narrative. The San Francisco Chronicle said it is written with unflinching honesty that is both revelatory and unsettling. And NPR says is a searing, unsettling, beautiful set of investigations deep into her own mind, body, and personal history. This is a book about love, friendship, family, and freedom, and the deep discomfort that can exist within those simple words. A riveting, difficult work written with rhythm and artistry. Here I am with Savala Nolan. Savala Nolan, thank you so much for joining me. You are a writer, a speaker, and a lawyer, and many other things as well, mother, wife, etc. Um, I'd love to start first with Don't Let It Get You Down, your book. I just finished reading it this morning at the time of recording, uh, and I'd love to kind of hear what set you down the path to write this book of essays. Well, I'm very happy to tell you what set me on the path to write the book. But first, I want to say thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's been really fun kind of getting to know you a little bit in our prep work. And I'm super excited to to step into the community that that you've built here. It seems like a really special, special place. Um, And thank thank you you for reading my book. (laughs) Thanks for writing it. Yeah, I, you know, I take no readers for granted. I, uh, they're all special and it's always exciting to hear that somebody read your book and enjoyed it. Um, So yeah, like you said, this book is a collection of essays. Um, Although I, I sometimes, you know, wish that maybe we hadn't used that word only because it can sort of scare people a little bit. You know, they hear that I'm a lawyer and it's a book of essays and thinking like, you know, maybe it's, it's, um, deep scholarship and stuff like that, but it's not, they're actually quite personal essays, um, creative essays and, and they focus on race, gender, and the body. And in some ways it's kind of, um, a memoir, right? I mean, you've read it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a series of stories really about um, these categories, race and gender, and to some extent class that are so definitional in our lives, you know, that have so much importance as we walk through the world and um, are things that we experience through our bodies, right? We all experience our gender and race and to some extent class through our bodies. Um, and I'm someone who's, who's kind of like in between in a lot of different ways, you know, and I think that, um, that's reflected in my perspective and, and, and what I write about, I like, just to give you an idea, you know, I, I'm a mixed race black person. So my mom is white and my dad was black and descended from enslaved people on his side of the family and slaveholders on my mom's side of the family. I'm someone who went to really like fancy private schools for, for almost all of my life, but I'm not from money. And I have experience with generational poverty. That's pretty, um, pretty extreme, you know, and enduring on my dad's side of the family. And I'm also someone who has been both fat and thin more than once throughout my life. I started my first diet uh, when I was like four years old and, you know, as most of your listeners will know, like diets tend to be a, you're on, you're off, you're on, you're off, like this cyclical thing. Um, 
And that was true for me too. So I've had the right kind of body, quote unquote, and the wrong kind of body, quote unquote. And as a woman, we're so like nailed to our appearance in this culture that what your body is like, you know, has an impact on your life. So I carry the perspective of someone who's had the right kind of body and the wrong kind of body in my writings too. And this book was just a chance to explore all those different identities and how they intersect um, for myself, but also to, to hopefully create something that was enlightening for other people, you know, um, to tell stories where, where people could either see themselves reflected or learn something new about the things that I was writing about. So that's really um, what the project of the book is meant to be and, and is. I think, you know, it turned out well, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I I really I deeply enjoyed it. I thought your writing style was both beautiful and honest and um really easy to sort of like get sucked into. Did, was there I have to ask you because I I was curious as I was reading it. Was there a particular arc to the order of the stories uh, or how how did it sort of come to be the way it is? Well, you know, we start the book with me writing about my experiences dating white guys or like wanting to date them and not managing to date them, you know, depending on how you look at it. And um, in that essay, I'm writing about this idea that I had in my head since I was really young, you know, which was that the best way to kind of feel really accepted in the culture was was to have a certain type of romantic partner, namely like a sort of successful white guy who could kind of like vouch for me and like translate me and, and erase all of the otherness about me, you know, and make me more legible and more acceptable. And so I start the book kind of in that search and unpacking it and analyzing it and um, talking about these various guys that I had this kind of strange dynamic with as I was trying to land one, right? As a way of making myself feel more acceptable to the culture. And then by the end of the book, I am in a really different place, you know? So I think in some ways, the essays, although they all kind of are a different slice of my life, they do kind of track a path toward more liberation and more self-acceptance and neutrality around my body and, and you know, le- being less engaged in that search for outside approval. You know what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely, that tracks with me because I, I read it as almost like the inverse of the stages of grief, like grieving an old like want and finding a new like acceptance Mm -hmm. um, in life, which I, yeah, I tracked it. (laughs) I'd love to talk about uh, a couple of stories within the book, one being White Doll, um, wherein it starts, I mean, your your stories, your essays kind of weave um, from moments in time, but it starts with your mother giving your daughter a white doll and also shares the complex and almost disastrous outcome of you giving birth to your daughter. Can you, can you kind of talk through that medical experience of giving birth while black, uh, while living in a fat body? What was that like for you? Well, of course I would never trade my daughter for anything. You know, I would do it all again. And I think most moms say that, um, and feel that, but it's also true that I had a really difficult and harrowing experience that I, I write about in the book. And, you know, the funny thing about all of these isms and prejudices and biases that show up 
um, in medicine, you know, against women, against black people, against fat people, against fat black women, you know, which I am, um, in the moment, it can be hard to prove that, that those biases are showing up, you know, even if the part of you that is very intelligent and instinctual senses that that's what's happening, it's very hard in the moment to, to prove it and to deal with it. So what happened to me was that I had a, a pretty okay pregnancy, you know, until about halfway through or, or maybe two thirds of the way through. And then things really started to go off the rails. Um, and I was, I was dismissed and ignored by my medical team over and over and over. I happened to have a, an all white medical team and because of, you know, my pre-existing health issues that included like an endocrinologist, a chiropractor, you know, I had midwives, I had the OB-GYN. Um, and I went to them, you know, complaining of very, very severe pain and vomiting and um, they just ignored it, you know. And in my, in my gut, I knew, I just knew that there was something amiss, that something was, was wrong with, with my experience. And I suspected um, what social science, you know, proves, which is that there's a pretty decent chance that between being fat, being black and being female, um, these healthcare providers, even if they didn't mean to, were dismissing my complaints, were not ordering tests, you know, were, were sort of undervaluing the facts that I was telling them about my own experience and questioning whether that, you know, whether I was an accurate witness to my own experience. And it all culminated in a very difficult labor and delivery. I ended up delivering my daughter in the cardiac ICU of the hospital. Um, and it was totally, it was necessary in the moment because I was diagnosed with a heart condition while I was in labor. But had I been listened to, that would not have been necessary, right? It, like I, I could have been diagnosed sooner and could have had a birth experience that wasn't like profoundly traumatic. And that actually kind of extended into the fourth trimester when I had to return to the hospital to have urgent surgery because once again, something else had been missed that I had been complaining about and showing textbook symptoms of for months. So I tell the story in part, um, you know, as an act of bearing witness to my own experience, um, but also hopefully to create some space for people to, you know, who aren't necessarily um, walking through life with my same type of body to glimpse, you know, what that experience is like and connect to it on a human level. And, um, you know, to circle back to this white doll that my, my mom gave my kiddo, you know, it was a lovely gift. It was well-intentioned and it was thoughtful, you know, grandma giving a doll to a kid. But um, the problem with it is a doll is meant to, in some ways, represent the child, you know, especially like a first doll. It's meant to kind of reflect the, the little baby to themselves. And my daughter is not white. She's mixed because I'm black. My husband is white and, and she therefore is mixed. And so to give her a white doll, it, it really sort of cut like a knife because it felt in that moment like my racial identity was being erased, you know, um, it felt like the fact that my daughter is a, is a kid of color was being 
sort of ignored through this gift when I had gone to Helen back to give birth to her. And so the essay becomes an exploration of how race operates between mothers and children and grandmothers and grandchildren, ultimately. Yeah, it was so gut-wrenching to read that story, um, too, because it just, I could feel so palpably, like, the fear, the frustration, and then, like, how that would carry over. You even talked about how um, you had expected that you would want a big family with lots of kids, and this dramatically shifted that for you. It did. I mean, I will also say that just the fact of motherhood shifted it. Like having kids is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be when I was 17, fantasizing about (laughs) having a million kids. You know, it's like, oh, wow, this is a just crushing workload, you know, a beautiful gift. I would never take it back. I'm incredibly thankful for it. But um, yeah, having one kid has changed my thinking about having like seven, eight, nine kids, which I always wanted. But so too has the experience of giving birth in such a chaotic and distressful and and ultimately preventable um, kind of hellscape uh, I, you know, I'm not sure that I just can, can ever go through that again. And, and that of course is its own loss, which I talk about in, in the essay too. And I cannot recommend this book enough. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I also, I would, I love, there were a couple, I mean, all of the essays were incredible, but, um, I think a few touch on themes that are, Universal, if you touch on themes that are unique to you. Um, and what I really found interesting in the essay Bad Education was sort of the universal fear that women feel, but also the sort of unique fear that you feel when the male gaze is involved as all of your intersecting identities come to pass. Let's talk about murder podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't listen to any, but I know they're out there. (laughs) Same, same. I don't listen to any either. Um, And I also have, so I'll say for the listeners, this particular essay covers like the violence against women in particular media and specifically in the music of Eminem. um, And law and order, right? Like violence against women as a form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I felt like so at, I mean, angry and at home while reading that essay. Mm. It um, has your take on SVU murder podcast, Eminem, any of that changed? Do you hate listen to any particular angry rappers now? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't, I don't hate listen or hate watch, you know, I mean, so this essay comes out of like my own confusion about my own behavior, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm a feminist. I've experienced sexual assault. You know, from a political perspective, I find violence against women just abhorrent and disgusting, you know, and yet I, I years ago could sit for hours and hours and hours, like I could practically pass a whole day sometimes watching like a Law and Order SVU marathon. And uh, it's not to knock the franchise, but, you know, those are stories that uh, get their life force from depicting very, you know, from very often from depicting brutal violence against women and um, not like in the sense of reporting, right? Or journalism, like it's not like the United Nations investigating something and drafting a report. 
this is entertainment. At the end of the day, it's entertainment that we're meant to binge on. And I struggled to reconcile how I could hold the political identities and the personal experience that I do. And at the same time, just kind of like mindlessly gulp down hour after hour of these shows and certain music. You know, I write about like listening to Eminem and, and uh, some other musicians. So it really, the essays, it's an attempt to kind of make sense of my own odd behavior, but it's not just me who has it, you know, like we're all coached to understand violence against women as inevitable. And um, we're, we're all sort of primed to be able to see it as entertainment. And uh, those don't strike me as accidental and they don't strike me as sort of without cost, you know, these stories should be told like to the extent that women are experiencing this violence, of of course they have a right to tell their stories. And, um, but when you, when you wrap the story as entertainment, I don't know, there's something else going on there. So, um, that's not free. Like, I don't think that's harmless ultimately. And it's funny because this essay has really struck a chord, like of all the ones in the book, this one comes up a lot. So I know I'm not the only one who has struggled with this or kind of identified it. You know, I think other people see it too. Yeah. I, I, so I too am the survivor of, of sexual assault. And I, as I was reading this essay last night, I sat up straight in bed because I had never like really put a pin in why I don't listen to murder podcasts or why the exact same song you mentioned by Chris Brown, these hoes ain't loyal. Why that to me was like, no. (laughs) And in, in reading just your clear and coherent take on why it doesn't make sense. I was like this, this all like, this all feels right but also like we've been force fed this sort of narrative that women deserve and are inevitably going to be attacked mm-hmm. and from a young age I mean part of what I do in that essay is like look back like well when did I start when did I start getting this bad education you know that has 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 pushed me to a place where I'm entertained by this shit you know pardon my French and you uh, may swear on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it starts very, very, very young. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. look at that. Yep, totally agree. I mean, no spaghetti straps in uh, middle school and high school sends a certain yeah. message. Yeah. Um, starts young. Okay, let's let's talk about um, the last two essays in the book, Fat and Ways White Girls Don't Understand. Um, which to me was a story, and you tell me um, if I got this right or wrong, was a story of the idea that the black female bodies are inherently caretakers to the rest of the world. Um, what was what was sort of your your heart, your hope in writing that story, that essay? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I would phrase it a little bit differently. I would say um, inherently seen as caretakers, right? Which I think is what you meant. I'm just. Yes. Uh, dropping the, the the extra words in there to make it crystal clear. You know, I talk in that essay about um, the fact that if you are fat and Black and female, as I am, um, there's nothing wrong with any of those traits, like alone or taken together. You know, they're just, 
they're just a constellation of the diverse ways that human beings can show up on the planet. You know, there's nothing wrong with them. Um, but in our culture, there's so few depictions of women who are black and fat, who are anything other than domestic, right? Um, and this is this is related to the mammy caricature. Um, and I think some of your listeners will know what that is, or they'll, you know, they know it even if they don't know the word for it. But for those who don't, I'll unpack it a little bit. Mammy, M-A-M-M-Y, is, uh, it's like a trope, an archetype, a character in um, American literature, TV shows, you know, that go way, 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 way back. And um, Mammy is is basically a Black domestic servant who usually has kind of a big body and um, is kind of sassy and strong, but also totally accepting of her docile position. And one of the things that she does is serve as kind of a foil to the idea of white womanhood as being this sort of beautiful, delicate thing that needs to be taken care of and is sort of soft and tender. Like Mammy's the opposite of that. You know, she's this kind of workhorse, you know, and that even if we don't necessarily see the Mammy character show up in our stories as much as we did, you know, 50 years ago, hundred years ago, the archetype is still very much in the culture. And there's a kind of erasure that happens, right? When you don't see your body reflected um, at all, or when you only see it reflected in one way. And like, don't get me wrong, fat white women do not have the hugest array of <laughs> you know, versions of them themselves out in the world too, in terms of like movies, film, books, culture, you know, um, fat women in general are not depicted, you know, with the full range of life experience and normal human emotion, you know? Um, but if, if you're a white fat woman, you still have a little more screen time and a little more variety than, if you're a, a black woman who's also fat and then, you know, because that particular set of characteristics is so tied to this sort of mammy character in a way that it's not for, for white women. And so this is a, the essays, it's an attempt to kind of unpack that and basically to explain what I mean when I say I'm fat in ways that even the white women in my family, you know, who have been fat, they don't necessarily relate to yeah. Um, I, I found that one really interesting and powerful too, because the point of view was so clear, um, and opening in ways I wouldn't have thought of. I was aware of the mammy trope, but I hadn't thought of how it shapes the way that actual living human women experience the world too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, these things are so complicated and I'm always trying to be as nuanced as I can when I'm writing about this, this type of stuff, you know, race and gender and body shape and body size are very complicated. Um, so in this essay, like I am painting with a broader brush than normal. Um, but hopefully, you know, I get away with it because there is a lot of truth to what, to what I'm describing, right. Maybe yeah. a truth that we haven't always articulated, like people don't always 
the response that I get is that people like weren't sure what a mammy was. And then they Googled it and looked at images and were like, oh, that, I know that. I know that mm-hmm. image, like Aunt Jemima, you know? Mm-hmm. I know who that character is. I just never made the connection that, A, it's called a mammy, and B, like nine times out of 10 in a movie or film or whatever, when I'm when I'm seeing a fat Black woman, there's like a connection between her and that stereotype in some form or another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that feeds nicely into little satin bomber jacket, um, mm-hmm. which I love that piece and what it represented and what the item of clothing represented with, without giving the whole essay away, because obviously everyone should read it. Can you, can you talk a bit about what this particular item of clothing meant to you and came to mean? So this was a little satin bomber jacket that I had in my early twenties. And it was like, the ultimate skinny jacket for me, you know, for my body. Um, as I said in the intro, like I've been fat, I've been thin. I think my natural body is on the fatter side, you know? And so to be thin, I really have to do like oppressive punishing, uh, control around food and exercise, to have a thin body, you know, it's like a brunette who's dying their hair blonde. It's like, you can have it, but it's not coming naturally. You know, there's a lot of work and upkeep. So at this one point in my twenties, when I was very deep in, you know, a subclinical eating disorder, I had this jacket that was sort of tiny and to me represented a certain kind of victory, you know, quote unquote, right. Because I was this is all through the perspective of someone who's desperately trying to contort her body into thinness, you know, by any means necessary. And this jacket that was so small represented a certain kind of, you know, arrival or success. Like I had finally gotten rid of my fatness, you know, and like many kind of skinny garments, you know, and I don't mean like how it fits you. I just mean like, like not like skinny jeans, but like a garment that you wear when your body's smaller. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, there was a b- brief period of time when I could wear it and then life happens and you get bigger and like, I couldn't wear it anymore, but I still mm-hmm. carry it around with me. Like for a decade, I carried this jacket around <laughs> kind of hoping that maybe I'd get back into it periodically trying it on, you know, and using that experience to tell me if I was pretty or not, if I was doing well or not, if I needed to go on a diet or not, like this little garment had a lot of power. And, um, ultimately, you know, I, let's just say I don't have it anymore. And that was the choice that I made. Um, and this essay is about that choice and about the complexity of the choice, you know, because, choosing to live in my natural body, which is fat, is on the one hand, an extraordinary liberation. You know, it's extraordinarily powerful to just be who you are, but it's not without a cost. Like we live in a culture that doesn't like fat people. So this isn't like a tie it up in a happy satin bow. It's all great kind of an essay, but Um, I no longer have the jacket and I don't want the jacket and there's complexity there, but ultimately I no longer want the jacket or have it. 
bottom line, you got you got rid of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> you got rid of the thing. Well, yeah. I, I think it it ties in really nicely with a piece you wrote in Health um, in mm. 2020. The headline is The Reason My Disordered Eating Went Unnoticed by Almost Everyone. And I think what you're describing in in your 20s and wearing the jacket and in the compliments given to you by your friends, you were actively torturing yourself in order to fit into that item of clothing. Um, you had an eating disorder. Um, so let's talk about how diet culture um, sort of led you there um, and where we are now and how you think about the whole thing. <laughs> how do you yeah. think about diet? That's the biggest question I could possibly ask you on this podcast. I know, but let, let's, let's see what we can do with it. So yeah. I just, I will, before I get into it, I'll just say I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder. And I point that out just out of respect for people who, who have been diagnosed and for all that that means, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of severity and their, their experience. Um, that being said, I think the reason I was never diagnosed, and this is kind of what the essay talks about is because I, I live in a world, we all live in a world where bodies like mine are supposed to shrink. They're supposed to disappear by, mm-hmm. by pretty much almost any means necessary, including, you know, what, what amounts to like almost starvation, right. Or a regimen of movement that is so punishing and punitive. Um, I think that I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder, partly because even at my very, very thinnest. And I have been like pretty, pretty painfully thin, you know, Mm -hmm. like sort of double take thin. Um, I'm still five foot 10. I'm still, you know, what you would call big boned. Like I have a big frame. I never weighed a tiny amount, even when I was way too small for my frame. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I've had the experience of going to the doctor and, you know, they look at me and, and think, oh, maybe you need to gain a little weight. And then I get on the scale and they're like, oh, actually you're supposed to lose weight. Let me, let me look at this chart, you know, like, so even, even when I was exhibiting all the behaviors of, um, an eating disorder and had a body that, that made no sense for my frame, um, I still wasn't small enough, you know, to qualify. And, uh, you tie that to this culture's kind of like often unspoken, but very, very clear insistence that fat people shouldn't exist and that they need to change their fatness. Um, and that black bodies are kind of out of control and problematic, you know? Um, and then you smush fat and black together and it's like, whoa, this person is really out of control and problematic. There's so much appetite and, so little elegance and so little self-possession here, like whatever they need to do to get thin, we're going to sign off on it. Um, yeah, I think that explains why, I mean, for years off and on, I cycled through extremely destructive behavior around my body, um, without any sense that it was destructive, right? Like with the sense that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, and with encouragement from people, um, because that's, I mean, I'm hopeful maybe it's changing now, but certainly like in the nineties and the early aughts and the eighties, if you saw someone and they looked a little bit thinner, it was, wow, you look great girl. Like, have you lost weight? Oh, you're so tiny. You know, it was just like, that was the reflexive response. 
um, never mind what hell might be going on kind of behind the dress size, you mm-hmm. know, hell that has racial implications, gender implications, you know, all kinds of things. So, I mean, this is kind of a start of an answer to your question. <laughs> anyway, I think um, eventually, gosh, I, it makes me sad to say this, but when I was in my mid thirties, I finally started to consider the possibility that maybe dieting did not have to be part of my life, that it was, maybe it wasn't my duty as a woman. Um, You know, there's this great quote from a scholar named Sandra Gilman who says, dieting is a way that women show that they understand their role in society. And I probably butchered the quote a little bit, but that's basically it, you know, and it wasn't until I was almost 40 that I began to understand that dieting for me was a way to perform femininity in the culture, right? It was a way to like adhere to what a woman is supposed to be. And it wasn't until I was like approaching 40 that I also began to understand how much diet culture is connected in this country to anti-Black racism. And when all of those things kind of came together, it gave me the political handhold that I needed to kind of pull myself out of the well. Like once I really, really got that like, oh, you mean I've been doing this because someone has taught me that as a woman, (laughs) I'm supposed to shrink myself, you know? I'm supposed to spend all this energy um, being obedient to these standards, you know, that I didn't create. And it's also connected to a world that doesn't like Black people and that associates Blackness with the same negative characteristics that we associate fatness with, like that those are connected like, fuck this. I don't want to do this anymore. And, um, very, very slowly I started to divest time and energy from dieting and create, right? Like it's not just divestment. It's also creating kind of the inner strength and fortitude and the space to understand fat bodies and black bodies and fat black bodies as perfectly terrific, right? Like just as good as any other kind of body, Um, it's complicated. It's a process. I would never go back. Like, there's no question about that. I wouldn't do anything to, you know, to go back. Um, but it is complicated because we still live in a world where these ideas are way less fringe than they were even five years ago, but like, they're not deeply accepted yet Mm -hmm. as truth. Like Mm -hmm. self magazine this month has like it's fabulous. People should check it out. The whole issue is about these, these questions, you know? Mm -hmm. So it is like slowly coming to the fore and thank God for that. But it's not at the core of our culture yet. Mm -hmm. I saw that at Whole Foods in the checkout line, um, self magazine this month has a fat woman on the cover. Um, they feature health at every size. They talk about all diet culture topics it's really interesting. And then they also, I, I don't want to devalue what they're, the work they're doing, but they also release their annual, like, lose weight fast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. complicated. And I think that the whole culture and institutions and individual people, like, a lot of us kind of have our foot in both worlds, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're on the bridge. We're kind of not quite anywhere yet, <laughs> you know? 
Um, but just the fact of the fact, I mean, can you imagine even 10 years ago having an issue of self magazine devoted to interrogating anti-fat bias and like anti-black racism in diet (laughs) culture? I mean, it would be unthinkable. So progress is always complicated. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, very often it's, it's sort of one step forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, you know? But ultimately, I'm comforted by seeing shifts where I do mm-hmm. see them. Yeah. Um, progress is progress. Um, I Okay, I'm going to read back to you some of your writing from this piece because there was a paragraph that I think is deeply powerful. Um, you just spoke to it, but I, I want to I give it to you because it's beautiful. So when a woman expresses a distaste for fatness and a preference for thinness, she is not expressing a natural neutral thing. After all, beauty standards vary across time and place. No, she is expressing a preference that has been cultivated and that has roots in American slavery and anti-Black racism. Yeah, it it's, it's true, right? I mean, there the historical record is so obvious, right? If you go around the world through time, there are places and cultures where fat female bodies are the preference, right? And even like right here, right now, today, like there are people who find fat women really beautiful and attractive and thin women less so, or they find thin women and fat women beautiful and attractive. Like attraction is very complicated. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. on, on the, um, on, on an animal individual level, you know, like we're attracted to all kinds of different things, but on the level of culture, um, it tends to get whittled down, you know, and it tends to get narrowed. And in our culture right now, um, again, maybe it's changing a little bit, but we are all taught in ways subtle and overt from the time that we're really young um, that thin bodies are better than fat bodies and that white bodies are better than black and brown bodies. And that connection, it goes back into chattel slavery, right? It goes back into it at the time before the Civil War when it was so important morally and economically and culturally for white people to to understand black people as being sort of inferior, right? And as being less than people, like that's essential to to slavery working, right? Slavery doesn't work if you view the enslaved people as full equals. You know, they they have to be somehow diminished in the cultural storytelling in order to justify the practice of slavery. And one of the ways that that black enslaved people were diminished was by being depicted as animalistic, out of control, um, sort of big, brutish, you know, with their bodies sort of like super strong as, as being too primal, you know, as being too sensuous and sensual, just having too much appetite in every way possible. And that was very, very, very clearly and explicitly tied to notions of fatness. Like in in the magazines of the day and newspapers of the day, it was very common to see articles that were like telling white women, don't get fat because then you'll be just like a black person. You know, if you don't control your food and your body, then you'll be exhibiting the same lack of control that we see in the Negro, quote unquote. You know, like it, 
I'm not making this up, but the articles are there. You can see them, you know? So the connection is really old and really deep. And um, until you unpack it and excavate it, you know, it still operates in the culture and in, in our own lives and what we learn about beauty and who gets to be considered beautiful, you know, unless you undo all that cultural baggage, you're still carrying it around. Yeah. And I I think the idea of beauty feeds in really nicely with how you wrapped up the piece for health, um, because you, you talked about your preference for body neutrality, um, body, this sort of like self-love and body love is wonderful, but it also, as you elaborated on in the piece, it means that only beautiful bodies deserve love. Um, and thinking of your body as beautiful allows you to deserve love. So let's talk, how has your view on body neutrality or your body or bodies in general changed over the pandemic? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that body positivity as kind of like an entry point or like an appetizer or a first step is really useful. You know, it's this notion that all bodies can be beautiful. That can be a revelation and it can be just a, a little bit of an opening into freedom. And I think it has value. Um, one of the huge limitations of it is that it's still focused on beauty, you know, and like I was an art history minor, beauty is great, you know, I get it, but do I think beauty should be part of how we determine who gets to matter in society? (laughs) Like who gets safety, who gets resources, who gets love and care? Absolutely not. That's, that's not the role of beauty, but we've sort of made it that way. So the limitation of body positivity to me is that it's still, we're still operating around trying to kind of wedge ourselves into beauty, you know, because beauty is important. Body neutrality is a little more radical in that it says, no, your body is just your body. Like it doesn't have to be beautiful to matter, you know, like it goes one step further than sort of clamoring for beauty by saying, well, let's, question this whole idea of why we care about beauty. Like what work is that doing? Who's it serving? Where is it getting us? Where is it taking us that we don't want to go? And so for me, body neutrality is very helpful. It's helpful as someone who's had a thin body and a fat body and who has frankly anxiety around gaining weight and losing weight. Because for me, losing weight is so tied to the illness that I lived with for so long um, that I get antsy sometimes around exercise for fear that I will lose some weight and that will trigger old thinking. So for me personally, trying to understand my body as, as just infinitely neutral, doesn't matter if I gain five pounds or lose five pounds, it's all the same. It's really helpful. But there are limits to body neutrality too, right? Um, As something that informs my politics, like my outward facing view of the world, body neutrality is actually not enough because, you know, when we're talking about systems and history and community, it's not enough to simply say all bodies are the same. The neutrality is not enough because it doesn't acknowledge 
the backlog of discrimination, right? Like all bodies are not positioned the same culturally, culturally, you know? So something that is more about reparation or liberation or deep, deep care, I think is politically more helpful. Do you get the distinction I'm making? Like personally, neutrality is a really, really essential touchstone just for my own little experience of my little body and how it changes. But it's not reparative enough when you're talking about like broad scale cultural change. Like we have to acknowledge the suffering and the inequity that befalls people who have fat bodies in this culture. And it's not enough as a political matter to just say all bodies are the same because we don't actually treat all bodies the same. We need something that is more oriented toward repair and um, dressing the wounds as opposed to just saying, oh, everything's neutral and fine. Does that make sense? I I think I'm tracking with what you're saying. It sounds like the touchstone before equity. Yeah. I mean, another example of it, you know, another way to think about this, and I'm somewhat hesitant to bring it up because it may turn some listeners off, but it's a helpful analogy is the idea of affirmative action, right? Mm -hmm. Which um, is meant to dispel the, the sort of idea that like, everyone has exactly the same chance. Everyone is starting from the same starting point. You know, affirmative action is meant to acknowledge the ways that women and people of color are at a disadvantage. Their starting point is like a hundred guards behind Mm -hmm. the other people's starting point because of systemic oppression. So there's a kind of a parallel that might help people understand, you know, the limits of body neutrality as a politic is it Mm -hmm. doesn't acknowledge that some bodies are actually starting from like a hundred yards behind because of the ways that they've been screwed over by society. So to create equity, like you have to acknowledge the gap. You have Mm -hmm. to acknowledge the gap. And you can't Mm -hmm. do that if you're saying, let's all be neutral, you know? Welcome to neutrality. Everything's good now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Hopefully that helps people understand what I was trying to say. And if it doesn't help, um, listeners, you can DM us and we will try to help. (laughs) Um, So one thing we've lately touched on but haven't touched on a ton um, is is poverty um, and how that impacts health in a variety of ways. I know your writing on the body overlaps with social justice because everything you do overlaps with social justice. So I'm curious on kind of the topics we're talking about right now lead really well into poverty um, on what your hopes are for poverty and health in the future. And I'm putting air quotes around this for the listeners and wellness. Mm -hmm. Um, Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, poverty and health are related in a million ways. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think health is a right, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's not a responsibility. So that's the first thing I would say is, We all have a right to conditions that allow us to be healthy, but um, nobody owes you health, whatever health even means, especially in a world where we often confuse cosmetic health with metabolic health and where the deck is really stacked against people. You know, you can't tell people you have a responsibility to be healthy and then there's no grocery stores within 50 miles of where they live. You know what I mean? So um, I think it's always important just to note that that health is not a moral responsibility. It's a right, but it's not a responsibility. And, you know, the thing that, that, that 
is coming to my mind is how narrow our understanding of health is. And it's narrow in ways that hide the role of poverty. You know, we tend to think of health as something that is controllable, first of all, that is earned through good behavior. That is like, it's an on off switch. You know, you're either healthy or you're sick. When in reality, like most of us are healthy in some ways and less healthy in other ways. You know, there's parts of our bodies that are strong and parts that aren't, you know, or mental and emotional health are complicated. And in reality, we we can't control what happens to us in life. You know, we all hear stories of people who like are the healthiest person you ever met. And then they are diagnosed with cancer or my grandfather who like ate a stick of butter and smoked cigarettes like every day and lived to be 99. You know, like we all hear those stories. It's complicated. We can't control the way um, the chips fall with our health and the social determinants of health are so much more important than like what we eat and drink and how many steps we take. We tend to think that health is about like eight glasses of water and no gluten or dairy or sugar and 10,000 steps, you know? And like, sure, movement and food, they play a role. But what plays a bigger role is like access to healthcare, literacy, whether or not you have a home, whether or not you live in a neighborhood that's adjacent to industrial or toxic waste. There are so, and I, I encourage your readers to Google social determinants of health because it's really eye-opening to see um, what science is telling us actually goes into health. And so much of what goes into health or a lack of health has to do with resources and access, otherwise known as whether or not you're poor, you know? Um, So I think, of course, if I had a magic wand, like I'd eradicate poverty, but I think a more like reasonable intermediary step is just for people to really begin to wrap their heads around the fact that health is, it's sort of what you do and don't do, but it's so much more than that in, in actuality. And that resources, resources are very often what makes the difference between having a life that is pretty healthy and and not so healthy. And those resources are, of course, tied to poverty and not just your poverty, but the poverty of the people around you and your parents and your grandparents and so on and so forth. Oh, I could talk to you all day. I, I feel like you do. <laughs> um, I, I'm so grateful to you for letting me schedule this time with you, for talking to me about all of this, for writing the way that you do so openly and honestly. Um, before we go, can you tell our listeners where to find you, what's coming up next from you, where to subscribe to you? Yes, of course. So the place where I hang out the most for better and worse is Instagram. <laughs> and my handle is not quite Beyonce as in I am almost, but not quite Beyonce, <laughs> not quite there yet. Um, I'm also on Twitter sporadically at Savala Tweets. I write a monthly essay for Medium. So for people who like read the book, love the book, want more, 
these are not book length essays, but I write monthly for Medium and that's savalanolan.medium.com. And then there's, of course, my good old fashioned website, savalanolan.com. Um, as for what's next, I mean, my agent like mentioned the idea of a second book the other day and I was equally excited and terrified. So, you know, we'll see, hopefully another essay collection before too long. Um, yeah, but I'm still kind of basking in the glow of, of this book having just come out. So, you know. I'm trying to also savor the moments. So to our listeners at home, I just held the book up. You can't, you can't see that. Um, <laughs> um, but by don't let it get you down, um, wherever you get your books, ideally a small independent book seller, but you know, wherever. Um, Savala, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure and hopefully we get to do it again someday down the road. This has been another episode of We Got Goals and a SweatLife.com production. Thanks to Ryan Deffitt for editing, to Savala Nolan for sharing your expertise and experiences with us, and to you, our listeners. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, rate and subscribe when you get a chance, and make sure you're following us on all social media using the name A Sweat Life.